I'm going to read, instead of a psalm today, I'm going to read a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 21. It's Palm Sunday, and uh, so I'm going to read you uh, Matthew 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Baruch habab Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, while I'm looking for my passage, I'll say that uh, this week is Palm Sunday, and then, of course, we have uh, the crucifixion, which Thursday, Friday, depending on how you perceive those verses, um, it, the crucifixion is this week, and uh, then we have the resurrection next week. And I did not do a crucifixion sermon. I did do a resurrection sermon for next week, but I didn't do a crucifixion sermon because following logically in the Bible, everything points to Christ, and you're going to see the crucifixion in today's passage. It's astonishing what you're going to see. If you didn't see last week's sermon, um, some of the things may be just a tad confusing, but I re-explain everything, and I'm going to continue to do that with each one of these. You'll hear some repetition because of what things symbolize. But uh, this is entitled, uh, it's Exodus 25, 10 through 22. It's entitled, The Ark of the Covenant and the Seed of Mercy. Um, so starting in verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out, you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a mold, uh, a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one keruv at one end and the other keruv at the other end. You shall make the keruvim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the keruvim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat and their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the keruvim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Since Genesis 1, verse 1, we have seen literally thousands of pictures of Christ in his work. The total number to me is literally astonishing. Surely his words to the leaders of his time about all of scripture testifying of him are true. Today we have 13 verses which are literally filled with pictures of him. So many so that some had to be passed over in order to fit the verses into a single sermon. However, when we are done, I'm sure that your head will be filled with delight at the absolutely marvelous display of the revealing of him in each word and thought. The Ark of the Covenant is probably the most notable aspect of all of Israel's worship. People who don't know a single thing about the rest of the Old Testament have still heard of the Ark and have an idea of what it is supposed to look like. It is the center of attention in movies, documentaries, books, and so on. 
were fascinated by it like no other piece of antiquity. If it is real, then it means that the story of the Hebrews is true, and so everyone is looking for it. Some have even untruthfully claimed to have found it. But there is no need for an ark any longer. Why? Because we have the true ark, which this one only pictures. We have Christ Jesus. Today, you will see why we can make the claim that he is the fulfillment of this marvelous piece of furniture where God met with man. Our text verse comes from Jeremiah 3, it's verse 16. Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say, no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. Jeremiah foresaw a time when Israel would no longer direct their attention to an implement of wood and gold. Instead, they would have their attention directed elsewhere. That time is beginning to occur, even before our eyes. Jewish people are coming to their Messiah in a magnificent way. And someday the nation as a whole will acknowledge him for who he is, the place where God meets with man. Many pictures of this are found in today's 13 verses. So let's get right into them. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is details for the ark. It's verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, and they shall make an ark. The word aron or ark has only been used one time so far in the Bible. And yet it actually gives us an early insight into the purpose of the ark which Moses is now going to be instructed to make. In Genesis 50, verse 26, we read this. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin, an aron, in Egypt. The aron simply describes a box or a chest of some sort. In the case of a coffin, it is a type of chest with a specific purpose. The ark, which will now be described, is also a chest, and it will have quite a few purposes, all of which picture Jesus Christ. Every detail about this marvelous piece of furniture looks forward to him. It has to be noted now that in these directions for the construction of the sanctuary and the implements in it, the ark is the first piece of furniture to be named and described for construction. And yet, we will find out later that its actual construction is detailed after the detailing of the construction of the tabernacle. This is seen in Exodus 36 and 37. It is right and appropriate that the housing of the ark would be constructed and ready for the ark itself. However, everything about the tabernacle is centered on this ark, and therefore it is also right that the details for its construction should come first. It should be noted here and now that what is being constructed is very similar to arks that have been found in ancient Egypt and elsewhere. For this reason, the pulpit commentary says this, arcs were an ordinary part of the religious furniture of temples in Egypt and were greatly venerated. They usually contained a figure or emblem of some deity. Occasionally they were in the shape of boats, but the most ordinary form was that of a cupboard or a chest. They were especially constructed for the purpose of being carried about in a procession and had commonly rings at the side through which poles were passed on such occasions. It must be freely admitted, which I do not freely admit, that the general idea of the ark, as well as certain points in its ornamentation, was adopted from the Egyptian religion. Other scholars agree with this, but I think it is incorrect. What is being described is, according to the book of Hebrews, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Therefore, the similarity between the artifacts of other cultures should be attributed to their attempt to copy the true heavenly things, not the other way around. Verse 10 continues, of acacia wood. This is the wood which was requested for the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furniture in Exodus 25, verse 5. And so this is the second time that shita, or acacia wood, is named in the Bible. As I said last week, acacia is a very slow-growing tree that would be readily available in the area where they are. Its heartwood is dark reddish-brown, and it is beautiful when it's sanded and polished. It is like the cypress in Florida, which is resistant to decay because it deposits in its heartwood waste substances, which turn into preservatives. This renders it unpalatable to insects. 
It is also dense and difficult to be penetrated by water and other decaying agents. It is therefore considered an incorruptible wood, thus picturing the incorruptible nature of Christ's humanity. Verse 10 continues, Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit, or a ma, is the measurement of which is the length of the forearm below the elbow. It comes from M, which means mother, and thus it is the mother measurement. It is debated what the exact length of a cubit is, but it is about 16 inches. The only other time that such precise measurements were given in Scripture so far was in construction of Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 6. The same words are used, length, width, and height. The dimensions of the ark mean that it will be 5.625 cubits in space. The actual dimension in feet is debated, but scholars go from about 3 foot 9 inches to about 4 foot 5 inches long. Assuming the smaller measurement, it would be 3 by 9 by 2 by 3 by 2 by 3. It is not an especially large box. Rather, it is humble in its size. Verse 11, and you shall overlay it. Moses is next instructed to overlay the ark. The word overlay is introduced into the Bible here. It is tzapha, and it will be used 48 times. The majority of them are in Exodus when detailing the construction of the tabernacle or in Kings and Chronicles when detailing the construction of the temple. The word means exactly as it's translated, to lay out or to overlay. Importantly, it is identical to another word, tzapha, which means to look out or about, to spy or keep watch. That was first used in Genesis 31, verses 45 through 49 during this exchange. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Yegur Sadhadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also, Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch, that word Safa, between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you remember the details of that sermon, the heap that was constructed and all of the surrounding details pictured the formation of the Bible, the Word of God. Verse 11 continues, With pure gold. The overlaying of the ark is to be with gold. As seen last week, Zahav, or gold, is the finest of the biblical metals. It indicates purity and holiness, royalty and divinity. It is one of the few metals that has a natural color which is not silver. Thus, it is both a metal and a color. And not surprisingly, both are associated with kingship. It is precious because of its rarity and it is valuable. Throughout history, it has been used as a basis for monetary systems. And it is the standard by which the value of other things is set. It is also considered an incorruptible metal. The gold that is to be used here has an adjective which is used to describe it, tahor, or pure. It means clean or pure, and it comes from the verb tahur, which means pure in a physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral sense. In this, we can see that the gold is to be wholly undefiled. Verse 11 continues, inside and out, you shall overlay it. The gold was not only to overlay the outside, but the inside as well. What was incorruptible in wood was to be completely covered in a layer of what is incorruptible in gold. Verse 11 continues, and shall make a molding of gold all around. The molding, or zur, is introduced into the Bible here. It will be used just 10 times and only in the book of Exodus. It is a molding which spreads around the top as if a crown it is comparable to an Aramaic word, which means a wreath or a crown. This may have been used to keep the mercy seat in place. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it. Moses is next instructed to cast four rings of gold. The word for ring is tabaat, and it will take a couple moments to explain this. The word means ring, but it comes from another word, tabah, which is a verb which means to sink. This then gives the idea of a signet which is sunk into clay or wax to make a seal. From this comes the idea of any ring. This was seen in its first use in the Bible back in Genesis chapter 41 with these words. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, that same word, off his hand and put it in Joseph's hand. Then he clothed him in garments of fine linen 
and put a gold chain around his neck. Verse 12 continues, and put them in its four corners. Some versions say four corners and some say four feet. The word is pa'amot and it means times or occurrences. Literally, it is to strike. One will strike an anvil. One's foot strikes the ground as he walks, etc. This is why some translators choose the word feet. If you look at different pictures of the ark, excuse me, you will see some with the carrying poles on the sides, anywhere from the very bottom of the ark to the middle, all the way up to the top where the molding is. Others put the poles right at the feet, so the entire ark is elevated above the carriers. I would favor the idea of the feet. This would keep the ark wholly elevated above the priests when they carried it, and it would keep them from having any part touch their body as they did so. Verse 12 continues, two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. The obvious question is, which sides? Almost all drawings show the poles along the long side of the ark, not the short one. However, that raises a problem, which we're going to see in just a moment. Verse 13, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. The word for poles is bad. It means alone. It indicates a single piece of wood which stands alone. These were also to be made of shita or acacia wood, and they were to be overlaid with gold. Verse 14, you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles were to be placed into the rings in order for it to be carried. This then brings in the problem of which side. The, you know, are they on the long side or are they on the shorter side? Was the ark carried like a funeral bier, or was it carried like a throne? If the poles were in the long sides, then it would be as if carrying a funeral bier. If in the short sides, then it would be like carrying a throne. The reason why this becomes complicated is because we read this in 1 Kings chapter 8. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. It is without a doubt that the ark rested lengthwise in the temple, with the cherubim on the ark on each side, to the left and to the right as one walked in. Thus the poles were along the short side of the ark. The poles were extended, but not removed, from the ark so that they could be visible in the holy place. It was a symbol that the ark had reached its place of rest. From this, we can know that unlike the pictures that we commonly see, the ark was carried by the priests as a throne. The ark would face forward with the cherubim on each side as it was carried. Verse 15, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. From even before its construction, the law was given that the poles should never be removed from the ark. They were to be as permanent as any other part of it. This was to ensure that the ark would never be touched. Should someone presume to do so, there would be an immediate penalty. 2 Samuel chapter 6 shows us this. Here's what it says. And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Once the ark was completed, the Lord directs that the testimony, meaning the two tablets of stone, which are the basis of the law, were to be put inside the ark itself. As the basis of the law, they represented the entirety of of the law. And what is the purpose of the law? It's explained in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you. The law was a witness against the sin and rebellion of the people. The substance of that law based on the Ten Commandments was contained within the ark itself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And glorious is the Lord in his place, to stand in his presence a glorious sight to see and to gaze upon the beauty of his face. But fallen man cannot so upon him look, lest we die from the stain of sin we bear. The words which testify us against us are written in his book, 
in the law, only condemnation is found there. But at the throne of Christ, there is mercy and grace at the place where God and man do meet. Once again, through Christ, we can look upon God's face and for eternal ages enjoy fellowship so sweet. Glory, glory, glory to the Lord Christ Jesus, who has made the way back to God for us. Our second thought today is, there I will meet with you. It's verses 17 through 22. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. As important as the ark and what it pictures is to theology and the Bible, the mercy seat is no less so. The mercy seat is known as the kaporet. This word is introduced into the Bible here, and it is used 27 times and only when speaking of this mercy seat. It is identical in meaning to kofer, which means a cover, but in this case, it indicates a satisfaction. This comes from the word kafar, which in this situation means to appease or to satisfy. The theological implications of what this mercy seat and its use pictures are of the highest importance for fallen man. This seat was to be made of pure gold, indicating no defilement. It was to be unstained in any way. John Lang describes its purpose. He says the mercy seat, the caporet, as a symbol of God's gracious willingness to accept expiation as such a fulfillment of his general will as covers and removes the demands imposed by the law or the special will on account of guilt. In 1 Chronicles 28, the Holy of Holies, where the ark and its mercy seat were contained, was called the Beit HaKaporet, or the house of the mercy seat, or even the house of the expiation. It is the place where sins were dealt with once a year on the Day of Atonement. As a squiggle for your brain, which you will need before we finish today, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word, kaporet, as hilasterion. Verse 17 continues, Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. The mercy seat was to be made to the exact size of the opening of the ark itself. Thus it served as a lid to the ark while serving as the place of expiation for the sins of the people at the same time. The tablets were thus embodied within the ark. Verse 18, And you shall make two caravim of gold. What a carov looks like is debated over. Ezekiel gives a vivid description of them in his book. Among other things, he says this, Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face the face of a man, the third face the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. Whether these cherubim above the ark look like those in Ezekiel or not cannot be known for certain. From the Bible, we can deduce that cherubim were a special class of being. The first time that they were mentioned was in Genesis chapter 3, where it says this, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They are a select class of angels which, among other things, are near to God. They have great power and they act as guards. As they are guards of the tree of life, they are the ones who can point man to the way of accessing the right to that tree. Two of them are to be depicted on the mercy seat. As a note of rectification, the King James Version incorrectly uses the term cherubims with an end on it. The I am at the end of the word makes the word plural in Hebrew. Therefore, the plural is either cherubs for English or cherubim for Hebrew. Cherubims is incorrect. Minus one for the King James Version. Verse 18 continues. Of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. The term hammered work or mikshah is used for the first of ten times. and Its meaning is disputed. It comes from mikshe, which means, surprisingly, a fancy hairdo. So it could be the turning of metal, like the braids of hair, or it could be the hammering of metal for shaping. The word ends is another new word, katsa. It means the extremity. Here, the Hebrew reads, from the two ends, and thus the term hammered work is probably correct. The cherubim are made to rise out of the mercy seat, the central thought of these cherubim is that they were there beholding the mercy seat and thus the ark because their form comes out of the mercy seat itself. In other words, the two are inextricably linked together. Verse 19, make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. 
The verse is explicit and well translated. One cherub was to be at one end and the other at the other end, and each was to come from out of the mercy seat. They were not to be made separately and then soldered on. The scholars at Cambridge said that that is not the intent. Instead, they were to be fashioned out of the same piece of gold that the mercy seat was made of. John Lang provides a thought on the symbolism. He said, the two cherubim as symbols of God's righteous dominion in the world, proceeding out of God's gracious will and the law in order, in order to the maintenance of the justice, which is represented by the union of the ark and the cover, the mercy seat. Verse 20, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. The word for wings here is kanaf. It means an extremity. It can be wings on a bird. It can be the edges of a garment, the corners of the earth, etc. If these cherubim resembled men, as some speculate, then the wings could be their garments which are spread out over the mercy seat. This would do no harm to the idea of wings. Or they could have been literal wings, such as angelic figures are often represented as having. Verse 20 going on, and they shall face one another. This means that they will positionally face each other. One cherub is facing the other on the opposite side. The word for another here is ach, which means brother. Thus, in the larger sense, it indicates one like the other. One is facing the other of its kind. Verse 20 continues. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. Although the cherubim are positionally facing one another, their attention is not directed towards each other but towards the mercy seat. It is true that they could probably see the reflection of one another in the gold, but the attention would be focused on the place itself. Everything else would merely be a reflection of what took place there. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Although it hasn't been said yet that the mercy seat would be placed atop the ark, it could be inferred by the dimensions of it, which matched the dimensions of the ark. Now what seemed implicit is made explicit. The mercy seat is the top of the ark and the covering for what is inside. And what is in there is repeated from verse 16, the testimony that I will give you. What is implied is that what is under the mercy seat and within the ark requires mercy. Were it not so, a mercy seat would not be needed. What seems cumbersome in this verse is that the lid is said to be put on the ark before the testimony is placed into it. This isn't the case. The word and can be used to mean after. Therefore, it would say after you have put in the testimony. Again, the tablets are called the testimony for a reason. They are a testimony to the people concerning their duty, and they were a testimony against them when they violated its standards. However, because they were inside the ark, they were sealed there within the ark and under the mercy seat. Verse 22, and there I will meet with you. The word meet here is ya'ad. It doesn't just mean to meet, but rather to appoint or to designate. In other words, this is the designated spot of meeting. It isn't a random place as if it could be there or somewhere else, nor was it a random time of meeting as if he may be in or he may not be in. Rather, it is the designated place of meeting. And the word you here is singular. It is a personal meeting place with the one who was allowed to come into it. It is not a general meeting place where anyone can come and meet with the Lord. Verse 22 going on, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. If the cherubim are on each side and their wings cover the mercy seat from above, then it must be that where the cherubim are looking is the spot where the presence would be. Not above them, as if he sat atop them. If that were so, then it would have said that. Rather, it is between the cherubim and below their wings, above the mercy seat. The word for speak is the general word for speaking. It is therefore from this spot that his word would go out. Verse 22 continues, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. The cherubim would be on the right and on the left of Moses or the designated high priest. From the center of the mercy seat between the cherubim is where the word would issue from. But it also notes which are on the ark of the testimony. The mercy seat and thus the cherubim are on the ark itself. Verse 22 finishes with these words about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. The ark 
is the focal point of Israel's worship with the Lord, and the mercy seat would be the place where the commandments would issue forth from. Again, as before, what is implied is that mercy is needed concerning the commandments of God. From that, it is implied that the commandments will, in fact, be broken. One doesn't need mercy if they are in compliance with the law. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Therefore, it is from this spot that propitiation of the people's sins would come and mercy would be granted. Into his presence I came, the ruler of all. I came boldly because the mercy seat was there. On the name of Jesus, I did call, and covered by his blood with God, fellowship I could share. I was going astray, and I was as lost as I could be. Yes, one of the world's many lost children. But in a mere moment, mercy found me. I was cleansed and purified right there and then. It was at the spot where my Lord did die and where his blood soaked into the ground. There at the place of mercy for him I did cry. And there at that place, mercy was found. Our third thought today is wonderful pictures. You've already been given all of the information you need to know for what the things we have seen picture. So somebody please come up and finish the sermon for me. No? Okay. Let's just think of Jesus, his person, and his work, and it will all fall into place. The shittim wood is the base material for the ark. Its heart wood is dark reddish brown, and it is beautiful when sanded and polished. This pictures Christ's humanity. He, a son of Adam from the Middle East, would bear the same general color as the wood. Shittim is an incorruptible wood, thus picturing his incorruptible nature. Though a man, he never sinned. The ark was not a very large size. In fact, it was humble in that regard. Rather than being some giant, ostentatious thing that people would flock to, it was rather lowly. This pictures Christ in his humbled and lowly human state. He didn't come as a larger-than-life figure, but rather he came to a poor family and led a rather small existence by the world's standards. The ark was overlaid with gold, the most precious of the biblical metals. This represents his deity, which overlays the wood, his humanity, he being the God-man. The word for overlay was safa which, as I noted, is identical to another word, which means to look out or about or to spy or to keep watch. Mm -hmm. Thus, his divine nature is what watches over his subjects, keeping an eye on them. The gold, therefore, not only pictures his divine nature, but it also is a picture of his royal, kingly status. One who has subjects is the ruler of those subjects. And finally, the gold is the standard by which the value of all other things is set, Therefore, he is the standard by which all other things are compared to. The gold of the ark is described by the adjective tahor, or pure. This comes from the verb tahur, which means pure in a physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral sense. In this, we can see that the gold is completely undefiled in any way. Thus, it pictures Christ's perfect purity in all ways, physical, moral, etc. The ark was covered inside and out with gold. This pictures his complete, incorruptible, human, divine nature. He is simultaneously fully man and fully God, and he is completely incorruptible in both respects. The molding of the ark is a continued picture, excuse me, of his kingly status. Though the word zur is never used in the Bible to indicate a king's crown in picture, this is exactly what we see here. The crown was at the top of the ark, which pictures his body, and it is the place where the mercy seat would rest. Thus, it is a picture of the merciful king. Next, we saw the four rings. The number four in the Bible always speaks of the physical creation. The four corners of the earth are represented by the four rings. The fourfold division of mankind, the family, tongues, countries, and nations are represented by these four rings, and thus, the four rings are represented by the message of the four gospels going out to all people and all places. The ring is the symbol of authority as a signet. Just as a signet sinks into wax as a sign of authority and as a testimony of the king's rule, the four gospels sink into the hearts of man and are a testimony and authority of the rule of Christ the king. These rings are attached to the four pa'am or feet of the ark. The word indicates a strike as if the steps of a foot. These four feet, then, are the Gospels themselves. They are the written record of the work of Christ from which the message of him is derived. These Gospels represent Christ the King in Matthew, Christ the Servant in Mark, 
Christ the Son of Man in Luke and Christ the Son of God in John, as depicted in those four Gospels. The poles of the ark, or bod, are that on which the ark rests as they carry the ark. The number two in the Bible indicates that there is a difference in things. They contrast, and yet they confirm. There is day, and there is night. They contrast, and yet they confirm the duration of an entire day. There is salvation, and there is condemnation. They contrast, and yet they confirm the end for all men. The word bod means alone. There are two poles which together support one ark. The ark pictures Christ, and thus they are the two testaments which present the work of Christ. They are what makes Christ mobile to the world as the world carries him, each contrasting the law and grace, but each supporting the whole and confirming the message of him. And each is made of the same materials, shittim wood and gold. Together they proclaim the dual nature of the coming Messiah and of the Messiah who has come. He is the God-man. As the four Gospels are the transition from the old to the new, it is the four rings attached to the four feet to which the two testaments are affixed. They are a seal of his rule. As Christ is the king, the carrying of the ark on the poles pictures the palanquin which a king would have been carried around in. He is the king depicted in the four Gospels which are tied to the two testaments of the Bible. The Bible is explicit that the poles were not to be removed from the ark. Should either or both testaments of the Bible be removed, we would not have a proper presentation of who Christ is. Without one or the other, we would have a faulty view of him, and without either, we would have no knowledge of him at all. So this answers Jim's question from the Bible class a week and a half ago. He asked, I don't understand how people can do without the Old Testament. He said, people that just stick to the New Testament miss everything. Well, now you know why. It's because if you try to pick up the ark with one pole, you've got a faulty carrying of the ark. You have to have both Testaments, which are joined together at the four Gospels, which reveal Christ in both directions. You see the, the significance of that now? It's amazing, isn't it? This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, guess what? He wrote that when there was only one testament. He was writing the other testament at that time, along with the other apostles. And so you see that we cannot carry an ark and transmit the message of Christ without both testaments. During a Bible study about three or four weeks ago, our precious Mabel back there, she asked me, what do these poles represent? Well, there's your answer, right? Mm -hmm. After the description of the ark came that of the mercy seat. It was to be of pure gold. Again, it pictures Christ's deity, his kingship, purity, and moral perfection. It was to be the same size as the ark because it was to be that which encloses it. The mercy seat is the spot where the blood was to be applied and it is the spot where God would meet with man. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the mercy seat is called the, I asked you to remember this word, nobody, okay, it's called the hilasterion, all right? The word means a sin offering. It is that by which the wrath of God would be appeased and thus it is a propitiation. And this is exactly how Isaiah describes the coming Christ with these words. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Paul picked up on this in the New Testament and uses the same word, hilasterion, to describe the finished work of Christ. He says, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a hilasterion, a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As the mercy seat sat on the crown molding, the propitiation for the sins of the people at the cross of Calvary is to be considered the crowning achievement of the work of Christ. The Kerovim were first seen in Genesis 3 verse 24 as the ones who guarded access to the tree of life. To guard something, as I said, means the access is available. If it weren't, then there would be no need for guards. Kerovim then are those who have access 
And though these two are not guards, they show that the way to the tree of life is realized in the propitiation of Christ's death as a sin offering. They are united with the mercy seat, being worked out of the same piece of solid gold as there are two of them, then it implies that even though they come from the same metal, they differ. Two implies a difference, and yet they confirm that they are one, having come from the same metal. What the meaning of these Kerovim are is debated. There are three prevalent views. The first is that they represent actual angels guarding the tree of life. That is incorrect. We're going to see that when we see the symbolism of the veil. The second is that they are symbolic representations of the Godhead. That is incorrect. We do not represent the Godhead in this way. And third, they represent all of the redeemed of humanity. Their positioning shows us what they represent. They are of the same gold as the mercy seat. Thus, they bear the same nature. However, there are two of them, and they are facing one another bodily and yet looking down at the place of mercy. Thus, they represent all of the redeemed of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. They come from the same metal, and so they are one, and yet they are separately fashioned, and so they are two. They contrast, and yet they confirm the redeemed of man. This is why the term tahor, or pure, was used. Remember now, go back and look. It doesn't say anything about tahor, pure gold, for the rings, or for the gold overlaying the testaments. But it does about the ark and the mercy seat. Why? It's because we have the Bible, which is translated by how many people? It is not pure in the sense that it is. it has man's hand of translation on it. I'm not saying that the Bible is infallible. It is. The original transcripts of the Bible are infallible. But because man has been a part of the transmission of it, it is not tahor or pure. Only Christ is, only the ark is, and the cherubim, which are coming out of the mercy seat. But they are covered with golden wood to show us the divine nature, the human nature of Christ. Do you see the logic there? We have become like Christ, pure and undefiled because of his work. Many verses in the New Testament confirm that we will be like Christ and that there will be one, even though two. In one example of our new Christ-like nature, Paul gives us these words. He says, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In support of the fact that we are one in Christ, yet still two in distinction, Paul writes this to us in Galatians 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor there is slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, guess what? That implies that there's a difference between us. We remain Jew and Gentile because we remain male and female. Can anybody here say that I don't know what a female is? Can anybody here say I don't know what a male is? So even though we are one, there is a distinction, Jew and Gentile, okay? The meaning of the cherubim looking towards the mercy seat then becomes obvious. All of the redeemed of humanity have but one place to look for mercy from God to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is a marvelous set of pictures that we have been given, but there is more. Twice it notes that the testimony was to be placed in the ark. The ark then isn't just a picture of Christ, but it is also a picture of Christ's death. Despite being incorruptible and fully God, he still died pictured by the ark itself. Inside it was the tablets which represent the entire law. Those being inside the ark picture Christ embodying the law. He is the fulfillment and embodiment of it. However, without his death, the law could never be considered fulfilled. In his death, the law was fulfilled and thus nullified. He is the end of the law. And in his death, a new covenant came into place, seen in the mercy seat. Both the fulfilling of the law for us and the granting of mercy from the law come through his death. He is the place where propitiation with God is restored. And John tells us this is so. In 1 John chapter 4, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the halasmos, for our sins. It is Christ who fully answers each demand of the law, it is Christ who covers over our sins with his own shed blood, and it is Christ who has come between us and the curse of the law. 
Again, Paul shows us this truth in Galatians 3, verse 13. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The testimony is sealed in the ark. The law is completed in the work of Christ. The blood covers the transgressions of the law in both, one in picture, one in person. Christ's blood has taken away the curse of the law from us, covering it for all time. As a pictorial lesson for those who are looking to see if Jesus really is the one to come and fulfill these things, John shares with us a marvelous account which occurred just after the resurrection. It is so innocuous that most of us just read over it and we never realize what he is trying to tell us. Here's what it says from John chapter 20. But Mary stood outside by the womb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary looked into the tomb. And what did she see? Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. A picture was being made of the true mercy seat where the blood of Christ left his body and sprinkled the earth below him. The two angels were there fulfilling the picture of the ark which was given to Moses 1,500 years earlier. These two angels, or messengers, as the word implies, are Enoch and Elijah, one a Gentile, one a Jew, who represent the redeemed of all of the ages. They were taken to attend to the Lord and to his ministry, as is seen in both Testaments of the Bible. It is in Christ where we are designated or appointed to meet with God. Christ is no random meeting place as if he could be there or somewhere else, nor in Christ is there some random time of meeting as if he may be in or he may not be in. Rather, he is the designated place of meeting. In him, God is always there in both time and in place. If you are in Christ, you have personal access to the throne of grace because in Christ you have been granted the mercy to again enter into God's presence. If you wonder why the Herovim had their wings raised, it is a picture of the redeemed gazing at the sight of Christ's work and raising their arms high in victory. In our white garments of purity, it will be 10,000 times 10,000 wings as we hail the matchless King of glory and shout hallelujah, Christ has prevailed. If you have never called on Christ Jesus as your Savior, why not? Do it today. And I'm going to tell you how you can very simply. It's by saying that I understand that there is sin in the world, and it's pictured by the giving of the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they stand as a witness against us. As it says, the mercy seat is on the top. If it wasn't there, well, you could look down at the Ten Commandments, but none of us can. We look at those Ten Commandments, and all we see is death and condemnation an eternal swim in the lake of fire. But on top of that is the mercy seat. It's the place where God took away our sins. The blood was spread on there and it covered the sins of the people. In picture, it was once a year in Israel. In person, it is forever through the shed blood of Christ. His blood covers the law, which he embodies. He is the embodiment of the law. And thus the book of Hebrews tells us that the law is annulled in him. It is set aside, it is obsolete. And in him is a new covenant which is made, which includes the Gentile people of the world and the Jewish people of the world. And all we need to do is accept that he is the one to fulfill all of these things and to take away our sin debt. Christ, I have sinned and I want your forgiveness and he will do it. And it is an eternal salvation. You can never lose it because of what Christ has done. And it's all pictured in what we see here today. The Ark of the Testimony and the Seed of Mercy, the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died to pay our sin debt. Please today make it a point of calling on him and being reconciled to him. Our closing verse today comes from 1 John chapter 2. It's verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the halasmas, for our sins. 
And not for our sins only, but for the whole world. Next week, we have a Resurrection Day sermon. It's Revelation 21, verse 5. It's a lot nicer than the land of Sweden. It's entitled Return to Eden. Yes, that'll be our Resurrection Day sermon, okay? And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I have a poem based on these verses that we just looked at and uh, it's entitled Place Where Mercy is Found. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length shall be. A cubit and a half its width, this is understood, and a cubit and a half its height, you see. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall it overlay, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around, so shall it be done, I do say. You shall cast for it four rings of gold, and in its four corners shall they be applied. Two rings shall be on one side, as I have told, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, let it be understood." You shall put the poles into the rings of the ark on each side, that the ark may be carried by them. In this you shall certainly abide. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, it is true. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall its length be, and a cubit and a half its width. Such are its dimensions, you see. And you shall make two carovim of gold of hammered work them you shall make at the two ends of the mercy seat not a single detail shall you shall you forsake make one carov at one end and the other carov at the other end to make it complete you shall make the carovim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat and the carovim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings you see then they shall face one another the faces of the carovim towards the mercy seat shall be you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. This you shall do. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. So I will do from between the cherubim too, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel, all the things that they are to do. O oh God, how marvelous are you in all ways for giving the true ark of the testimony to us and so forever, yes, even through eternal days, we can fellowship with you through our Lord Jesus. All of these pictures from Israel's past have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. And through him and his work, we are reconciled at last. Yes, through Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. Praises, yes, praises, we shall eternally sing to you, O God. And forever in your marvelous light, golden streets we shall trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. How wonderful it is to know that these things all point to something else. That they're not just crazy stories that are made up by some guy out in the desert and, and uh, a bunch of people that just haphazardly walk through the desert until they assimilated into another culture or overthrew another culture. No, every single thing that you have laid out in the Bible is true and it shows us of the work of Jesus Christ. Every detail, every single thing keeps showing us how desperately you want us to just have faith enough to believe. Believe, believe that I have sent my son to do these things for you. And the New Testament simply confirms all of it. It's all there for us to see if we'll just open our eyes and look. I would pray that those people that are struggling with their faith and not really sure would determine to say, I am going to accept the truth of what I read and I'm going to accept that you have a good plan and a purpose for me and I'm going to read this book as if it really is your word because it is I would pray for that for them and I pray for each person here and those that aren't here today that you would be with each one of them and bless them in their hearts and souls and Lord I just thank you for every good blessing that you've given us how wonderful you are to us and we praise you and we exalt you above all for the cross of Calvary the celebration of the death of Jesus Christ which we're going to commemorate in just a moment because it didn't end in death and defeat. It ended in victory. Thank you for that, O oh God. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have taken this bread and given a blessing over it. He would have said these words, 
Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Belecha Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. A picture of Christ coming out of the grave. The bread of life went into the earth for our sins, and he came out of the grave for our justification. The bread of life. But before he came out of the grave, he had to die. And so he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have said a blessing over this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei puri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it? the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Give you the...
high priestly blessing that they gave in Israel uh, when the high priest would bless the people. It's a good time to do that. And we're honoring the Lord in his crucifixion. He would have said, Yeberechecha Adonai ve'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai pana ve'liecha v'ikunecha Isa Adonai pana ve'liecha ve'yasem lecha shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>